set the scene, a football stadium, the Middle East, people gathered, tensions high, not for the match though, but for revolution. Football hooligans have been around since football's inception, but we've seen the dark side of the sport cement its place from the late 1950s onwards. Why do these hooligans act the way they do? Are they all hooligans? And what exactly even is a hooligan? This podcast aims to answer some of these questions by concentrating on how the various subcultures that these hooligans possess affect their behavior as well as how they interact with the state by looking specifically at groups in England and in the Middle East. Hey guys, Shagan here for another episode of Casual People Talk Smart. Luckily for you all, you won't have to be dealing with my voice all the way through, as I'm glad to say I have some thoughts from Mr. James Dorsey, an award-winning foreign correspondent who focuses on social change in the Middle East and North Africa, who actually stumbled across this research. I was looking at a way um, to look at fault lines in the Middle East. Okay. uh, And to do it in a way that was not going to be one more analyst uh, where you try and figure out what the differences are by in the way that T's are crossed or I's are dotted. And I had written by a sheer fluke <laughs> I, a, uh, in the summer of 2010 a, um, uh, an article on the sort of political background why the Middle East wasn't very well represented in the World Cup. Yeah. A friend of mine, who's a a very established writer uh, and a football fan, uh, phoned me and said, you've got a book, and sort of the penny dropped. Right. The ref has blown the whistle. Let's get to it. The common stereotype of football hooliganism as an exclusively English disease clearly no longer prevails. It has been replaced by a belief that while in Britain, football-related violence may be on the decline, hooliganism on the continent is perhaps more serious and less effectively controlled. However, I think now we need to get to the wording. Is hooligan the right word to use to describe the phenomenon? Well, the answer is both yes and no. First of all, I... um... I do not use the term hooligans. Yeah. Certainly not when it comes to militant football fans in the Middle East and North Africa. Essentially, there is an ultra and a hooligan. An ultra has an ideological imprinting, essentially. They take usually far-right ideologies, like we see in Italy and the Balkan states, or other kinds such as the ultras in the Middle East, where they are organized and with weapons. However, there is a difference with the ultras in the Middle East and North Africa and the ones in Europe. For example, the Egyptian ultras refrained from adopting the right-wing ideology of some of their counterparts overseas, or the violence common to the European soccer hooligan. And they said, we are normal people, We love our country, our club, and our group. We are fighting for freedom. That was the common thing between the revolutionaries and the ultras. We were fighting for freedom in the stadiums. 
Whereas, broadly, hooligans are the troubled drunk fans who aren't usually organized and their violence is not usually planned. The hooligans do not necessarily come with an ideological base. Therefore, the wording we use to describe such a phenomenon is important. Looking at the subcultures of these ultras or hooligans, it starts to paint a clearer picture as to why they behave the way they do. If you're living in a democratic country, so you're living in Western Europe primarily, yeah. and to some degree Latin America too, uh, after the democratization process, then you have multiple, you have several things. You have multiple ways of expressing grievance, yeah. discontent, what have you. Mm -hmm. Violence is your last resort and almost never applicable. Yeah. Uh, second of all, you have a police force that engages with you yeah. prior to a match, whatever it may be, and actually tries to, uh, to in conversation, mm -hmm. uh, avoid a situation in which there would be violent clashes. Yeah. Uh, and you also have groups of militant football fans in in Europe, for sure, where it's really about fighting. Yeah. And who will meet in some forest or some isolated place and fight it out yeah. with, with no football match in sight. I don't have an issue with using the term hooligan yeah. when it that kind of stuff. Fighting has been the backbone of the general football hooligan, especially in England. The subculture consists mostly of young men who come together due to their love for the game as well as their ties to a football team. John Clark, in his writings on subcultures, stressed that in order for young males to solve major conflicts in their lives, they looked to adopting subcultural styles and the rise of skinhead culture in the 60s and 70s gave them that exact opportunity. They followed the dressing of the mods, who were known as modernists, who listened to modern jazz. They nitpicked certain ideals from the traditional working class culture with their cropped hair, Doc Martin boots and braces. Aggressive and chauvinist, the skinheads became a big part of the end which were usually stands in the football grounds where most of fighting broke out or took place. With the culture taking over, this increased their group mentality and gave them a sense of collective identity, celebrating aggressive masculinity and being tough. Looking more into the skinheads, we can look at the football club West Ham United. I'm forever blowing bubbles is what these passionate West Ham fans sing at the top of their lungs. The passion is undisputable. However, this is the home to some of the pioneers in the hooligan movement. Hooliganism typically comes from lower working class homes and considering East London's deep-seated image of violence, hardship, and being an outsider, 
it was bound to thrive here. Ramon Spige, the sociologist, seems to believe that the attitudes and traditions of the West Ham hooligans have been strongly influenced by the local cultural traditions of the East of London at that time. With the rise of skinheads, the appearance of common style attracted the youths among the West Ham fans, and with the East's appearance of being an outsider, they treated it as a place that had to be defended against other groups. We can see that the rise of skinhead culture, as well as the subcultures that existed in East London at the time, affected the way in which West Ham hooligans behaved. It made them violent, ready to fight, and aggressive, as well as territorial. Another interesting subculture identified is that of casuals, which started to gather momentum in the late 70s and became very prominent throughout the 80s. Following Liverpool's successes in Europe, this provided their fans with the opportunities to travel the world and get new fashionable clothes that weren't available in England. This also gave the men an opportunity to boast some economic successes, considering the austerity measures put in place by Margaret Thatcher and the high unemployment rates that that had caused. Bear in mind, these were men from lower working class families. By showing these new clothes, it made them feel a sense of success, a sense of well-being, a sense of importance. The lads, as they were called, came back with the latest Lacoste, filler, Elise and Stone Island gear. Casual subculture essentially replaced the skinhead phase and there were reasons for this. Dressed in casual clothes, this gave the hooligans the opportunity to be more violent and harder to be spotted by the police. The hooligans were able to blend in with normal supporters. However, this became a problem. The peak of football violence was in the 80s, with 56 people being killed in a fire following a fight, and even a 15-year-old boy was killed in Birmingham following fighting between Birmingham City and Leeds United. Albeit the ability to hide from the police, this eventually became the downfall of such a subculture. The fashion trends became identifiable to the police, which led to hooligans having to return to supporters' clothing to hide themselves. Now, how did the police deal with these hooligans? Well, the introduction of CCTV and surveillance was crucial to this. Furthermore, police employed tactics such as segregation of home and away fans, intelligence-led policing, undercover operations, as well as introducing identity card schemes. In England, the term hooligan seems apt to describe these individuals as they had no specific aims rather than to fight with opposition and claim territory. And as we can see, subcultures such as the casual scene, as well as skinhead culture, and the general lower-class nature of these participants led to the violence which they caused. I feel it's also important to note that the social classes which these individuals belong to is very important. As a result of their lower class, they found it harder to obtain high status through employment and income, Therefore, the reliance of physical intimidation gave them the opportunity to feel as though their status had been risen. In short, they felt legitimate once they showed aggressive masculinity. Now, 
Let's move across the globe to the Middle East and Africa and see how things differ. In the Middle East, you're, talk, you're talking about uh, a region in which governments do not allow any uncontrolled public yeah. space, in which there are few, if any, and increasingly fewer, uh, opportunities to express a grievance. Yeah. And you have a police force that either beats you to crap or kills you and then checks who you were. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, the options that are available to people in democratic societies are not the options that are available to those in autocratic societies. In terms of the Middle East and North Africa, I feel analyzing what subcultures affect how the ultras in this case interact with the state would not be accurate. Due to the authoritarian states that exist in this part of the world, it's hard to identify, like has been done for England, the development of various subcultures in the Middle East and Africa, especially in terms of football hooligans. thing to keep in mind is that the vast majority of major clubs in the Middle East and North Africa were all uh, um, founded with either a political affiliation, an ideology, um, you know, they were anti-monarchy, pro-republican, uh, they were Islamist, they were anti-colonial, whatever it may have been, but most of them have a political history. Mm. The ultras in this part of the world essentially have had politics embedded in their culture. Highly politically motivated, and even before the revolutions, the fighting that occurred between them had been political. For example, the ultras from Zamalek in Egypt called themselves the biggest political party in Egypt who represented the people that were angry with the system. point trying to be made here is that we can see the difference in how the hooligans in England act compared to the ultras in the Middle East and Africa. Rather than rallying support and joining together just to fight off other groups in order to claim territory like the hooligans do, the ultras in the Middle East are using their large influence to topple authoritarian regimes. The cultures largely affect this. As Mr. Dorsey stated earlier, when you have a democracy, it's easy to express grievances. Therefore, in England, the hooligans didn't need to be political and weren't even considered that dangerous to government stability. However, these ultras in the Middle East are considered far more dangerous. In the street battles that ensued with security forces in early 2011 in the run-up to Ben Ali's departure into exile on January 14th, in which some 300 people were killed, ultras and members of Tekris formed the protesters' fighting corps in Tunisia. The existing culture in the Middle East and North Africa of repressive an authoritarian rule was something the ultras couldn't take anymore. And this shows 
and the way they interacted with the state. A lot of people have spoken about the barricade of fear that was broken. Yeah. So, you know, the barricade of fear was that you didn't go out and protest because the risk was too high. Mm-hmm. In effect, the barricade of fear was broken at two levels. The first level was the fact that they went to Tahrir Square. Yeah. But the second level is, I mean, you're, you know, run-of-the-mill run Joe Schmo, and the police are attacking you or threatening to attack you. Your instinct is to leave. Yeah. But then you have these guys who were fearless, who you respected. And if they weren't leaving, who were you to leave? Yeah, true. So you got the breaking down of the barricade of fear on two levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there are people who will claim that without the ultras, Mubarak would not have been overthrown. Yeah. Um, I'm not willing to go that far, <laughs> but I'm also not willing to say that that's uh, patently false. Yeah. Breaking down of the barricades of fear showed that the existing cultures of repression and authoritarian rule were no longer going to be tolerated by these individuals. I also found it very interesting how rather than sports athletes pioneering change, it has been ultras who have done so, even though they have been naively viewed by people, including myself, as men who just like to fight. They have risked their lives to fight for people as well as the country. In this podcast, my aim was in was to show the difference in the cultures that these hooligans in England and these ultras in the Middle East and North Africa come from. From this, we can see that there is a difference in the way that these individuals interact with the state. And also, we must know that we cannot just put them all under one umbrella. Ultras differ completely from hooligans, as I've shown in this podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Casual People Talk Smart. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode on football hooliganism. And I hope that now we can see the differences between how the culture that these individuals come from affects their behavior and how they act. While talking to Mr. Dorsey, I came to a conclusion that in terms of politics in the Middle East and North Africa, they are much more political in their aims in comparison to the hooligans in England. Let's hear what he had to say. Again, I think that you've got to differentiate in Europe. I mean, you look at the Balkans, particularly former Yugoslavia, and and that's a different picture. True. Um, some of the ultras groups in Italy mm-hmm. are also with very right-wing tendencies. Yeah. Uh, so I think you, you know, I think by and large that's probably accurate what you're saying, but I don't think it's universal in Europe. To round up, he also gave me some thoughts and the impressions he got while carrying out research into this area. First of all, I found the whole phenomenon interesting. Yeah. Uh, second of all, you know, the deeper I delved into this once I started with it about seven years, eight years ago, um, was that I also started, you know, football is by definition political. Yeah. And it has played a political role across the globe. 
but mostly, you know, you look at Latin America, you look at Europe, uh, Africa, uh, it's played a political role in a given circumstance at a given time. Mm -hmm. And so the role ebbed and flowed. I think in the Middle East and North Africa, what you see if you really look at it is that it played a fairly consistent political role for more than a century. Yeah. Almost from the moment that football was uh, introduced to the region, either by the British or French colonial administrators. Once again, tuning in, guys. See you next week on Casual People Talk Smart.